I had to figure it all out on my own. And this great thing happened where, okay, I've got nine months and I've got specific things that I need to accomplish in those nine months. You know, when I got pregnant with Alexis, I was making like $14,000 a year. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to the ever-incredible Tasha Cochran, founder of One Big Happy Life. Mostly, we're going to talk about her inspirational story. Single teen mom in the Marines, to Yale Law School, to successful law career, to creating a successful multiple six-figure online business. She is 100% one of those people who's going to have to come back on the show in the future because there is so much more I want to ask her than we could possibly cover in an hour. But in addition to her story, we'll also touch on her work in housing and urban development, tackling racial and gender bias in lending and the financial accessibility gaps in credit and banking. If you're someone who's feeling stuck or like you don't have the resources to move forward, this is an episode you need to hear. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Tasha, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Tasha to download your free Discover Your Passion Project workbook and for the complete show notes. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Tasha, how's it going? It's going well, Chelsea. I'm excited to be here. I'm incredibly excited to have you. And there are so many stages. We do all kinds of research before we do these podcast episodes. And actually, about an hour before we get on this call, I called my integrator and was like, there are about a million things I want to ask Tasha. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go back to the beginning and what you did right after high school. Right after high school, I joined the Marine Corps. I am not originally from the United States, so I really didn't know anything about how to get into college. My parents didn't know about how to get into, apply for, afford college. And I didn't get any college counseling at my high school either, but I did meet a Marine Corps recruiter and he said, hey, guess what? We can give you money for college. And I'm like, all right, sounds good. What was that experience like? I think the Marines as a young woman is still an uncomfortable place. Boot camp, of course, was my first experience. And, you know, you hear that boot camp is really hard. And it was in some ways because it was my first time away from home. But I really enjoyed the experience. I loved moving away from my house, getting to see other parts of the country and being fully independent. I would say it was challenging to be a woman in the Marines because I am definitely an outspoken person. I am not necessarily an order follower. So obviously that would not be a good fit for the military. But, you know, I like to push the envelope. I like to improve things. And I think that that is less desirable in someone who's enlisted, not an officer, and even less desirable from a woman than it would be from a man. So I definitely bumped heads with a lot of my superiors more than my male counterparts. That makes sense. And so was your goal to kind of be in the military for a few years to qualify for the GI Bill and then do something else? Or were you planning to make it more of a career? My parents hadn't talked to me about what it meant to have a career or even thinking about really much 
about what I wanted to be when I grew up, besides becoming a doctor or a lawyer, which is like the immigrant standard. You must become one of those two things. So when I joined the military, you're surrounded by other people in the military. So those people see it as a career. And so then you see it as this thing that you can do for 20 years and you retire and it's a great career to have. And then you have a pension. I initially went in thinking that that's something that I would do. So I would use the GI Bill to get my bachelor's degree and also get my citizenship so I could become an officer. And then that's where I would spend the rest of my time in the military. But I realized that the military was not a good fit for me because I like to change things. I like to see inefficiencies and fix them. And the Marine Corps is definitely a, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're going to keep doing it kind of place. But also I ended up getting pregnant very soon after joining the military. So I had my daughter when I was 19 and it really changed my perspective for what I wanted out of my life. Also, 9-11 happened very soon after I joined the military. So I went to boot camp in 2000 and then 9-11 happened in 2001, almost to the day, my one year anniversary in the Marine Corps. And that's when being in the military got really real because I knew that we were going to be going to war. I knew that there was a possibility, a very realistic possibility that I could die because now we're in active war. And then having a baby, it made me realize that while I do believe in service and I actually would love it if every person in the United States served. I knew that it's not something that I wanted for my long-term career. I wanted something different. I wanted to provide a different kind of lifestyle for my daughter as well, because you really don't get paid very much in the military, which is really unfortunate. You really don't. And so you actually brought up an interesting thing about your parents. What did they think in both of these major moves, right? When you decided to join the military and then how did they help you or support you when you got pregnant? They loved me joining the military. They definitely saw that as something prestigious. And I think they really viewed me as a bit of a troublemaker in high school because, you know, I would cut school a lot. I wouldn't put in a lot of effort. So they saw this as a way of maybe me getting more discipline and getting my head straightened <laughs> on my shoulders or whatever. So they were very supportive of me joining the military. They were not supportive at all of me having a child. I was 18 when I told them that I was pregnant and they were devastated, you know, because they figured, well, that's going to ruin your life. And at first I was in a relationship. I was engaged to my daughter's biological father. So we told them together. So even though it looked like I was going to be married with a kid, they still weren't happy about it. And then three months later he left me. And then after that, they were even more devastated. But I didn't live anywhere near them and my parents didn't have much in the way of financial resources. So they helped out a little bit, like they got Alexis's stroller and her car seat, small things like that. But I really had to provide for myself and create a household for my child by myself. And it's crazy because when I got pregnant, I didn't even have a driver's license. I owned my clothing and a boom box and that was it. I lived in on-base housing, which you can't do as someone with a kid. Like You have to move out of the barracks. And so I don't even know when I look back on it now, because my daughter is 18 now, I'm like, I cannot imagine her having a baby and creating a full life, you know, so it's crazy now, but obviously it worked out. <laughs> and I think we had um, Emma Johnson on the podcast earlier this year talking about this kind of narrative that as soon as you're a single parent, especially a young single parent, that like your life is over, right? And so how did you break away from that mindset and be like, no, I'm not doing that? 
Honestly, I think the thing that made my parents think that I was a difficult child, which is that I did not listen to what anyone told me, <laughs> actually made primed me to be a successful single parent because I just didn't believe anyone. When they said, like, your life is over, I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll show you. And I just focused on what I wanted out of my life and also what I needed to do, right? Because there were those two things. And so obviously, I needed a car, I needed a driver's license, I needed needed a place to live and bring my child home too. And then as I lived my life and got to experience more of life, what I wanted changed. So very quickly, I decided that I did not want to rent an apartment. I wanted to see if it would be possible for me to buy a house, which everyone said, you're crazy. You're 19. How are you going to buy a house? That's not going to happen. And you're going about to be a single mom. Well, I ended up buying my first house just four months after Alexis was born. So oh my gosh. moving a newborn into a brand new house. Well, it wasn't a new house, but new to us house. So I was thriving. Was it hard? Yes. But every time someone told me I couldn't do something and then I did it, that's when I really just realized that most people have no idea what they're talking about. And that if I wanted something, I needed to be the one to figure out how to make it happen. There's so much here, right? Because like, you bought a house, you're in the you have a career in the Marines, whether you chose to stay there or not, you have a daughter, and you're also going to college at night. Talk me through a little bit of what the logistics of this look like. Because this is another thing, a narrative we hear a lot of like, I just don't have time to do anything more or different, right? And like, here you are parenting as a single person with your parents far away. What did this look like at that point in your life? Yeah. So what I would do is in the morning, I would wake Alexis up and get her ready. I would drop her off at, she was going to a home care provider. I would work an eight hour day. Then I would pick her up, go home. We'd spend the evenings together. I'd put her to bed and then I would work on my homework for my college classes. Now it's not like I was taking a full load. I would only take one or two classes a semester, but still, you know, there's definitely time. What I wasn't doing was, well, luckily social media was not as much of a thing back in 2002, 2003. So I wasn't on social media. I didn't watch much television. Instead, I just focused on my college classes because I knew that the life that I wanted to have meant that I needed a college degree. And so at what point did you decide that getting that degree and becoming an officer wasn't the path you were going to stay on? Well, so after I had Alexis, my body changed dramatically and I gained a lot of weight. And in the Marine Corps, me being 5'8", and before I had Alexis, I was 155 pounds, that I was still on the cusp of being overweight in the military. And which is crazy because I look back, I don't know if you've ever heard that meme about spending your skinny days thinking you were fat. <laughs> like oh, that, yeah. I mean, when I look back at pictures of myself, I was very lean because I just carry a lot of muscle. So I was, you know, even though I was heavier, I looked very thin. And so after my daughter, I ended up being around 175 pounds, which put me at overweight. And I really struggled to lose the weight and get back to that pre-baby weight. And so that created a lot of friction between me and my command because I was just overweight by military standards, not by regular people standards. And there really weren't the resources to help me lose the weight. So with that, that in mind, I was still okay, but it really, the whole experience of becoming a parent, the lack of support, it just didn't feel like a supportive 
work environment, which, you know, I guess Pete shouldn't be expected of the military, but there's supposed to be some level of camaraderie and we're in this together and, you know, let's figure this problem out together. And it really was not that at all. It was like, I was out adrift with no one to help me. And I really just didn't like the environment anymore. So that is why I decided that I didn't, I could have, obviously I realized at this point I'm capable of anything. So I could figure out this weight thing on my own if I want to. I can still get myself into a commissioning program and get my bachelor's degree. But is that what I even want? Do I see a future for myself with this organization? And at that time, the answer was no. So I decided that I needed to figure out, well, what's my life going to look like if I leave the military? And so I created what I use now to budget, which is a one-year spending plan. And I created budget projections. So the year after I leave the military, how much will everything cost and how will I afford this? And that's how I knew by crunching the numbers that it was entirely possible for me to leave the military and do something different with my life. Because of course, everyone in the military is telling me, there's no way you're going to succeed if you leave the military. Why would you ever leave this good job? Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you how money played into this decision, right? And I think that this is a place too, where we get stuck, where we realize that we're on a path that maybe doesn't suit us anymore. And then we feel stuck and like money is the thing that's holding us back. So if you want to tell us a little bit more about your spending plan and then how you narrowed in on what your next career was going to be. Okay. Yeah. So the spending plan, I actually started using that immediately as soon as I got pregnant with Alexis because I didn't have a budget. My parents didn't teach me how to budget. They didn't teach me even how to open a bank account or write a check because, you know, we used to write checks back then. But I had to figure it all out on my own. And this great thing happened where, okay, I've got nine months and I've got specific things that I need to accomplish in those nine months. So just budgeting by paycheck or for the next month made no sense at all. And so I just created an Excel spreadsheet that had really the whole year because why stop at nine months? And that's what I started to do. That's how I started to plan my life to make sure that I would have enough money because money was super tight. You know, when I got pregnant with Alexis, I was making like $14,000 a year. That's not much money. It doesn't go very far, even with your room and board covered. So that's how I started to do the one-year spending plan. In my mind, when it came to deciding what I wanted to do next, I still had only two real career options in my mind, doctor or lawyer, because that was all I ever heard. And I think so many of us get caught up in that, in that we don't know what's possible. We only know what we've been taught. So, okay, I'm like doctor or lawyer, but at this point now I'm pregnant. Well, now I have a daughter and I didn't see myself going through the rigors of residency. So I decided to become a nurse. I applied to a nursing program at Virginia Commonwealth University, which was near my house at the time. And I got into the nursing program. And I don't know, something just didn't feel right to me. And by that time, I was married to someone else. And he was talking about, well, maybe he might like to go to law school. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should do that. Law school sounds cool. Not knowing really what it would be like to be a lawyer. And so I switched my major from nursing to economics before I had even taken any nursing classes and went from there. The person you were married to then, is that Joseph? No. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many parts of your story. This is... I know. No, I got divorced right after law school. Okay. Well, let's talk about economics. So if you're going to go to law school, economics is an interesting place to start, right? And there's a lot of people will start in politics, undergrad and things like that. So why did you focus in on economics? 
Really, I just Googled how to get into law school. Google was my best friend throughout this whole thing. I don't know that I would have been as successful as I have been if the internet didn't exist because I just had access to so much information. I mean, not all of it was great information, but even not great information is better than none at all. So I just Googled how to get into law school, best law school majors. And then out of the list of law school majors, economics seemed to be the most interesting. Like I hated politics. I've always hated any sort of U.S. government courses, any of that kind of stuff. So I knew that I didn't want to be any kind of political science or public policy major. At least that's what I thought based on my aversion to those classes in high school. Obviously, that's not true because I went on to become a policy-based attorney later. And it seemed interesting because I'd never taken an economics class. So I said, well, let me see what this economics thing is about. And I actually really enjoyed it. Economics was my undergrad major, very near and dear to my heart. It is a fascinating study and one that is often so stripped from actual how the world works. <laughs> um, it's that basic macroeconomics principle of like consumers are rational. And it's like, all right, well, the whole thing is broken <laughs> from the beginning. And, you know, it's a great way of thinking, learning to think through problems. But you're right in that it does have these shortcomings because it's like devoid of all sorts of context, which is why I one of two reasons why I didn't actually complete a full economics degree, because as I got deeper into economics and I'm taking things like biodiversity and ecological economics, I'm like, this is a whole bunch of economics and it's not very well rounded. So I had the opportunity to pivot my degree because I changed schools to Mary Washington to one that was more of a liberal studies degree that was like a create your own degree. So I added in American history. So it was a blend of economics and American history that I focused on in my undergraduate degree. Did that studying those things together bring you closer to doing policy work? I would say no, it didn't. It made me a well-rounded person and helped me understand why things are the way that they are, especially not originally being from the United States, but still having to deal with the repercussions of race relations in the United States. Because when someone sees me, they would never think, oh, she's from South America. They're going to think that I'm African-American because I am brown. And so, you know, I have dealt with the race relations issues just because of the way that I look, but I've never fully understood how it came to be what it is until I became an American studies major, which is not just U.S. history, the, the whitewashed U.S. history, but really the scholarly study of U.S. history. Absolutely. And I think that there's so much when we look at history through an economic lens that we can see how decisions were made, right? Of like it, people in power always trying to keep economic power and that causing divides that last generations and generations. And so you graduate, you go to law school, not just any law school. Where did you end up going to law school? I went to Yale for law school. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Amazing. Your parents must have been very happy about that. They were. It's so funny how my parents, when you're a 18 and they still see you as a child and they question your decisions and then you get into Yale Law School and after that, no matter what you do, they're like, all right, we know you know what you're doing. We'll leave you to it. <laughs> <laughs> Just got to get that, you know, Ivy League stamp of approval, apparently. That cred, that, that minor cred thing. Right <laughs> and so as you were going into your law career, how much did money and the, the wealth that could come from being a lawyer play into that decision? Or was there a real kind of passion for law that you were chasing? 
So I definitely did not have a passion for law. I did realize, though, the importance of understanding laws because when I got pregnant with my daughter, here I am by myself, having to try to figure out, well, how how can I get child support? Is that even a thing? How do I get custody of my daughter so I can make all legal decisions buying my house? What is a a mortgage? What is this promissory note? What does this mean? And just encountering all these things in the world that I didn't understand, this whole other language, but actually controlled everything about my life, that's what made law so fascinating to me. So the finances of law school. So I started Googling about law school and how much do lawyers make? And that's when I learned that it actually matters where you go to law school, because initially I was just going to go to University of Richmond. It's the closest law school to me. But it turns out that where you go to law school really, really matters and really affects your job prospects after law school. So that's when I decided that I would try to get into the top law schools, the top 14 law schools, Yale of which is number one and has always been number one. And of course, when I said I was going to try to get into Yale, everyone was like, well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to go to Yale? Everybody wants to get into Yale. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But also saying you're black. You had this daughter when you were a teenager. You're You're coming from this no-name undergrad. No one in your family is rich or connected. How are you going to get into Yale? Like, I think those are the assumptions. Certain types of people with certain backgrounds go to Yale and not people like me. Well, it turns out that, you know, having an excellent GPA, doing well on the LSAT and, you know, spending some time and effort on your essays can go a long way because I did get into Yale. I got into Harvard and Stanford. I got into other top schools with full-ride scholarships. And I decided to go to Yale, which does not offer a full ride, any sort of academic-based aid, because of the job prospects and because they have a loan repayment assistance program. So even if you choose a career that's less lucrative than going to a big law firm, it will help you repay your loans. So everything that I did, was it was always about the money, but it's figuring out a way to make these financial decisions also create the life that I want to have. So it's finding that right balance. Yeah, I think that balance is an interesting question in this place in particular, right? Because it does matter where you go to law school, but how different are your prospects at Yale versus Harvard or Stanford, right? Those are both still excellent schools. And so how how did you think about those loans? Was it just really wanting to go to the best possible law school? So I also got into Harvard and Stanford and I asked people questions about, well, how how do you look at Harvard graduates versus Yale graduates? And the summer before law school, I actually was an intern at a top New York law firm, Cravath, Swain and Moore. And I remember, this is my first time too, being in these very, very wealthy, very powerful spaces coming from a working class, middle class background. And this white male partner came up to me because he knows, you know, I'm an intern and he's schmoozing me, trying to groom me to come to Cravath. And he's like, oh, where are you going to law school? He's like, I'm a Harvard man myself. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to Yale. And he's like, oh, Yale, you know, and there's this, it's the elusive Yale is the one that got away. And so even is there a difference between the job prospects at Yale versus Harvard? I would say yes, there is just based on the fact that 
Harvard is such a big school. And remember, when I went was right when the bubble, all of that financial upheaval was happening in 2008, 2009. When the financial crisis was happening, law firms were constricting their hiring. And I would hear about people who were in the bottom half of the class at Harvard, because back then they still had class rankings and grades, not being able to find jobs. And it's like, um, but it's Harvard, though. But Yale doesn't have that problem because it's half as big. It didn't have grades. There were no class rankings because they recognize that it's silly to bring in just 200 of what they believe to be the top minds in the world and then rank them against each other so that law firms can pick between them. So I knew that if there was a sure thing, it was definitely Yale. And then Yale also had better loan repayment assistance. Harvard and Stanford both had those programs, but they had way more restrictions. And so Yale just gave me more options all around. So we get really into kind of the money side of your story and your impact with that in your career after law school, right? So tell us what you did as a job after you graduated from law school. So during law school, I discovered that I hated law firm life because the billable hour requirements are insane. And yes, the pay is really good, 160K right out of law school, but I had a family and I love spending time with my family. So I'm not willing to work that many hours and not see them. So I decided to go into public interest, which again, Yale's loan repayment assistance came into play there because I could take a job making $60,000 a year and not have to worry about making payments on my loans because Yale made those payments for me and would make those payments for me for 10 years. So I did a fellowship called the uh, Presidential Management Fellowship, and I started working for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which is HUD, in their Office of Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity. Now, the position that I took, the law degree wasn't required, but it was more of a law degree enhanced position because I was investigating allegations of fair housing discrimination. And so I got the most complex and novel cases, which were often fair lending discrimination cases. And so that's how I actually started working in the finance industry after law school. Correct me if I'm wrong. You actually have a story of almost having a mortgage scam issue, right? What was your experience with that? Yeah. So in 2006, I was thinking about refinancing my house because mortgage interest rates had dropped. And this was right in the midst of what we all realized was the problematic, like low doc, no doc, bait and switch mortgage lending practices that led to the meltdown. I think it was supposed to be like a 5.5% interest rate. Back then I had a 6.5 and fixed. And then they sent me the loan documents with a notary to the to my house. So it wasn't at, there was no title company or settlement agency or any of that. And it was just because I happened to read these giant stacks of paper that said it was 5.5% um, adjustable rate mortgage, which is very, it's a subtle difference when you're talking about a stack of 30 plus papers that are lined with words that I happened to catch the fact that it said that it was adjustable and not fixed. And so many people, and that I understood the difference between an adjustable rate mortgage and a fixed rate mortgage. And so I rejected the mortgage, but I made some mistakes and then I was counting on the refi. So I had already spent my mortgage money. So then I ended up getting a 30 day late on my credit, trying to catch back up on my current mortgage. That's why I ended up doing the mortgage foreclosure clinic in law school. 
And why I didn't put two and two together that this would be a good career field for me in law school, I don't know, but I still stumbled across it later after law school. Wow. I'm so glad you caught that on the refi. I want to talk more about your experience in consumer protection and fighting racial discrimination in particular. But before we do, let's take a quick pause to hear about our partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. We'll be right back. Have you ever wanted to start a blog or online business, but were intimidated by the tech or worried that it would cost far too much money? What if you could set up your site in just minutes for less than $3 a month? Bluehost lets you do just that. For $2.95 a month, you can buy your own domain name, host your website, and instantly install WordPress so you can get right to work creating your corner of the internet. When I started Smart Money Mamas, Bluehost had me up and running in less than 15 minutes, writing my first blog post and putting me on the path to where I am today. And when I got stuck, support was there to jump in and help me keep moving. I am forever grateful to them for making my first step in this journey so easy. So are you ready to start your online business? Head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Bluehost to dive in. This ties into so many consumer protection issues, right? Of like, we can mandate as much disclosure as possible, but if people aren't educated enough to know what those things mean, because it's jargon filled nonsense most of the time, you're still going to have people stuck. So I'm very curious. We've talked a little bit on the podcast about racial wealth gaps and wealth inequality. And I'd love to hear from your perspective as someone who worked in this space. What does this look like in practice today? And how are we working to make it better? So after the debacle of the financial crisis, you know, the Dodd-Frank Act created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I actually, I worked at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau starting in 2017. And I just left last year to work in my business, One Big Happy Life, full time. But there are lots of other things that the Dodd-Frank Act did and mandated, but one of the things that they did was change the way that the disclosures look. So your settlement statement used to look like this huge HUD-1 statement and where everything was buried and you had no idea what was going on. And while we do still have like the traditional mortgage promissory note instruments, we now have the truth in lending disclosure that really explicitly says things like what your interest rate is going to be. Is my rate fixed? Yes. And it will actually explain some of these things that mean it means that your interest rate will not change over the course of your loan. So the goal of these new disclosures was to make it much, much easier for people to understand the financial instruments and what they're agreeing to so that they can see if things change. It also requires lenders to use these form disclosures and you get a disclosure at application and then you get the same disclosure again at closing and you can compare the two and they actually have to tell you what things changed blatantly and explicitly in the disclosure. So I think that that helps a lot. Also, it used to be that it was up to the lenders to decide whether or not a mortgage was affordable to you. So back in 2008, where they had these mortgages with the adjustable rate mortgages or these interest-only mortgages or these low-doc mortgages where they don't verify income, they really can't do that anymore because now we have qualifying mortgage rules. And so basically, they have to show affordability according to the QM rules. And if they don't and these mortgages go bad, then they don't get any kind of safe harbor. It's The assumption is that because they made mortgages outside of the QM rules, then they 
kind of knew that these mortgages were going to fail. And so they're more susceptible to liability. So those protections are going a long way. But also we have the small business side of things because small business is also consumer lending. And so Section 1071, the CFPB is supposed to create rules that have reporting requirements so we can start gathering the data to make sure that lending, small business lending is being distributed fairly because we already have that on the consumer lending side, at least in terms of mortgages, because we have the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, which the CFPB uses to analyze the data to make sure that banks are lending fairly and non-discriminatorily. Yeah, the non-discriminatory part, I'm curious, the disclosures are fantastic and we need that. But when we talk about access, specifically small business, but housing still as well, there is significantly less access for people of color, people who have intersectionality of women and people of color, it gets less and less. And so how could people navigate that world? The hard part is that the way it is now, it's really hard for a person to tell if they're being discriminated against because there's no way for you to know whether or not you got the best rate. It's really entirely up to regulators to catch on the back end. You know, it's really frustrating and a lot of people don't realize it. We all assume that the lender is going to give us the best rate, but the truth is that that doesn't always happen. So for example, let's talk about auto lending. Auto lending is often you'll have a big bank and that big bank will be a lending partner for dealerships all across the country. Those dealerships, they really do set the interest rate. So they may make the request to the bank, like run the credit with the bank, but then they ultimately can decide, like tack on additional fees, tack on additional terms. And so what would happen on the bank's back end when the bank is doing its analysis of its loans, because the bank is ultimately responsible for making sure that its loans are issued fairly, you know, I would see banks having to adjust the rates on the back end because for no reason other than racial disparities and sex disparities, you have Blacks, Hispanics, and sometimes Asians and women being charged higher rates when all other credit scoring factors are held equal. So they have to fix it on the back end when the dealerships are discriminating on the front end. There are lots of other, there are so many things that I could tell you. The lack of having a bank branch in your area that you can access easily, and also experts within the bank that have specific areas of expertise. Because if you have a bank branch, but it's only checking and deposits, and there's no one there that talks about business solutions. There's no one there that specializes in mortgages. So you can't build that kind of personal relationship with the bank. You'll see disparities in those particular bank branches in approval rates. I had no idea that the dealership set those interest rates. <laughs> we have had some women in our community that I've done coaching with that will come and they have like 21% auto loans. And I'm just like, How? I think that's happened twice. And this explains that someone else is setting that rate. Even if you're relatively high risk, that's a really high auto loan Yeah, versus just like getting declined, which is always like, why would you give this loan instead of just declining it? And banking access is a huge one. I think it comes up a lot, especially as you start to talk about racial and income disparities. A lot of people don't know that there's reporting that goes on where if you overdraft, that can make it hard to even get a bank account. And then never mind navigating like small business loans and mortgages are huge, but you know, you can't get a credit card, you don't have a debit card, and how that impacts just throughout 
Absolutely. Uh, the idea of being credit invisible or unbanked or underbanked. And of course, if you're Black or Hispanic, you are more likely to be unbanked, underbanked, and credit invisible. And you have less access to the best credit opportunities. And the bottom line is that, you know, I know in personal finance, there is this narrative that debt is bad. But the truth is that middle class wealth was built on debt, was built on mortgages. And so this idea that you should avoid credit when the truth is credit, access to credit gives you access to opportunity. It's hugely problematic that that narrative exists. Instead, we should be teaching responsible use of credit so that we all can use credit and leverage it in a responsible way to help us build wealth. I completely agree. Can you explain for a second what credit invisible is for those who aren't familiar? So it's someone that doesn't have a credit profile. So most of us start out as credit invisible because we don't have any kind of credit before we're 18. But typically at some point after 18, you'll get your college credit card or your, you know, call sign on a car loan with your parents or something like that so that you can start building credit. But it can be hard to start building credit, especially again, if you live in a place that is a credit desert where there are no financial institutions around you, especially before this increase in internet banking. And so again, when you don't have access to those credit opportunities, you have difficulty starting a credit profile, especially if you have non-traditional forms of credit like rent and paying utilities. So then you can't show that you're a responsible borrower. So then you can't get access to some of the best rates. And so then by the time you go to buy a house, you may end up paying one percentage point or half a percentage, one percentage point more on your mortgage if you can even get a mortgage because you don't have any credit. How does that tie into, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but how does this tie into renting, right? Anytime I've ever rented an apartment or a house, I had to do a credit check. So there are actually multiple types of credit reports. When you're renting, they may be pulling a different type of credit report that's related to your rental history, but they may also pull your credit report from you know, FICO, your credit score, or your credit report from one of the major credit reporting agencies like TransUnion or Equifax, just to make sure that you don't have dings. So the fact that your credit report is empty shouldn't prevent you from getting Department, but what it might do is increase your security deposit because they don't know one way or another if you are responsible versus if you show up with an 800 and something credit score, they may be more likely to let you just have the regular one month first rent, one month security deposit, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that ties into too all the costs of being underbanked, of being credit invisible, of like the less money and the less autonomy you have, the more expensive life gets instead of the other way around, which is a huge issue. So this sounds like super purpose-driven work. Did you enjoy it? Oh my gosh, I loved it. (laughs) I really, really loved doing this work. Obviously, I had a major impact on what was happening in the world. And I was actually slated to be on the team that was going to write the regulation for 1071, which is the small business reporting. And so that's a career maker right there. That is like (laughs) the gold stars of gold stars. Because when you write a regulation, you become the expert in that regulation, which means that at that point, I could have gone on to write my ticket at basically any bank or any law firm to be the expert on 1071 for that organization. And I made the decision that I wanted to 
try my hand at building a business empire. (laughs) So we're talking about passion and purpose this month, Tasha. And I think that this, your whole journey, right, is this idea that we don't always know exactly where we're going to end up. And we just kind of have to keep shifting and making decisions. And we've heard that so far. And so how did One Big Happy Life start amidst all this amazing work you were doing in law? So it's kind of crazy, uh, very roundabout, like basically every story of my life. In 2013, Alexis was in the midst of puberty and experiencing a lot of self-doubt because we lived in a majority white area. She's not blonde hair. She doesn't have blue eyes. Her hair is curly. And she really hated the fact that her hair was curly. And she wanted to straighten her hair. And I said, no, your curls are beautiful. And she's like, but mom, your hair is straight. I'm like, point taken. So I cut off all of my relaxed hair because I've always had long, relaxed hair. I've never had natural hair. My mom relaxed my hair when I was five. And I let you were five. I was five. Yeah. Wow. And so every six weeks since I was five years old, I've been putting a cream on my hair to straighten it. So we filmed it because before I did it, of course, I Googled it. Like, how do you go natural? How do you care for natural hair? Because I had no idea. And I found a lot of YouTube videos. So Alexis and I, we cut my hair off at home. We threw up the YouTube video, thought nothing of it. Fast forward four years, I left my job at a law firm as a banking and finance attorney and started working for the FDIC as a bank examiner. That was supposed to be my mommy track job because I had just had my son after three years of trying to conceive him with Joseph, who you know. So I wanted to spend more time with my family. So this is, again, passion and purpose. I wanted to be home with this baby as often as possible. Well, it turned out that was a nightmare job that had me traveling weeks at a time and being gone all week long and not seeing my family. I'm like, this is not going to work. I'm miserable. I'm looking for a new job. I don't care if I've only been here six months, breaking that rule too. And Joseph's like, okay, great. But you've got to find some kind of passion project to take your mind off of how unhappy you are at work while you search for a new job. And it turns out right at that same time, I got a hundred dollar check from YouTube because that hair video had just been amassing views over the course of years. And it finally hit that point where they're the payout level, which is a hundred dollars. So I'm like, okay, well, I'll just start making some videos. So if you go to our YouTube channel, you'll actually see that our earliest videos are of me documenting my job search real time. That's how many fucks that I did not give. But it turned out that I really liked making videos. So even though I actually landed my dream job at the CFPB, a job that I absolutely loved, I still kept making videos. I just had to, of course, get their permission. And there were certain things that I couldn't talk about. And I couldn't do partner with banks, obviously, because I was regulating them. So it was a conflict of interest. But I could do other things like be in the April 2019 edition of Oprah Magazine and things like that. And they just thought it was so cool, my coworkers. So I know a lot of people are afraid of doing things that are outside of their profession because they'll say, well, what if my colleagues see me and think that I'm less professional? Every single one of my colleagues that saw any of my videos loved it. In fact, I taught them a lot of things about personal finance. And not only that, but I ended up hiring one of my law school classmates as my attorney. She's an entertainment lawyer. So I think great things can happen if you allow yourself to just go where your passions lead you. And so when you started, right, this is Joseph's idea of like a passion project. It wasn't his idea, but like his suggestion that you go do something. How did you grow it into a business? What transition point did you go from like, hey, this is a hobby that I'm going to make a little extra cash to now you have a you know multiple six-figure business? So I had no idea that 
you could actually just start a business. You know, this is another one of those things where you don't know what you don't know. I just thought, well, I'm making YouTube videos and this is this thing that pays money. But as I started looking into, well, I wanted to be really good at it. So I started to do research and that's when I came across my first online entrepreneur, which is Amy Porterfield. Oh gosh, I love Amy is like my online business mentor that she doesn't know it. She knows it because, you know, we've met, but it's unofficial. So through Amy, that's when I discovered that information products are a thing. And of course, I know that because I've bought so many books. And at that point, I've taken lots of courses to learn how to edit videos and things like that because I'm a lawyer, not a videographer. And so I realized that I could turn my expertise and that I should turn my expertise into profit because guess what? This expertise didn't come to me for free. It cost me money. It cost me time. And I am deserving of being compensated for the positive impact that I'm having on people's lives. We all are compensated in some way or another. And so I just decided that that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to build a business that allowed me to live the life that I wanted to live while facilitating other people's transformations too. So I just started taking a lot of online courses to learn how to market and, you know, to try to figure out what kind of products and services I wanted to offer. And it's just built up over time. We need like a clap track for the, I deserve to be compensated (laughs) for my expertise because I feel like there's so many people that struggle with that, right? Of who am I to ask to be paid? Who am I to start this business? Obviously, there's a lot that went into building this. Tell me about your first launch. Like, What was the first thing you tried to sell? Okay, the first thing I tried to sell, like I said, I came across Amy Porterfield, and this was the beginning of 2018. I took her webinars that convert course that doesn't exist anymore. It's Digital Course Academy. It's all in one. And she had a 60-day return policy. And so Joseph looked at me like I was crazy when I bought this course because it was expensive. It was the most I had ever spent on a course. And I'm like, look, I got 60 days to make this money back. So let's see if this Amy Porterfield knows what she's talking about. So I decided, but I was scared to do a personal finance course. So I decided I would do a YouTube course because I'm like, look, I've got this YouTube channel with 20,000 subscribers in a year. I know something about YouTube. We decided that's what we were going to sell, our YouTube course, YouTube Made Simple, didn't have an email list. So I did Pinterest ads to build up a list of like 200 and something people. And then we launched with webinars and we spent $300 on Pinterest ads and we made $5,000 on our course that did not exist. Amazing. So then we spent the next three months creating the course and dripping it out over time. So did you make that clear in the webinar that they were people were going to be building the... Yes, absolutely. No, you've got to be really upfront and set the expectation. And I think a lot of people love the idea of co-creating. And now that I'm a digital course, I don't know what to call oldie, you know, I'm well indoctrinated into digital courses. I know the power of being in a beta. So boy, am I looking out like I look for betas to try to hop on them because that's when you get in at the best price, you get the most access. So yeah, I wish I'd been known about Amy Porterfield back when she was doing her one-on-one coaching stuff. I know. (laughs) This is so inspirational, right? Of like, you did a launch, you didn't actually have the product yet, you didn't have an email list. All of the objections that we hear from people about starting an online business, you were just like, I'm going to go for it. And I just love it. I want to go back though. Why were you afraid to do a personal finance course? 
Because it's my work. Like, it's the thing that I've dedicated my entire life to. Even before law school, I worked for Virginia Commonwealth University advising veterans on how to maximize their student aid, their student loan benefits, their veterans benefits. So I've committed my whole life to helping people improve their financial lives. And so I didn't want to take the risk of putting out something that I wasn't sure would I mean I knew it would work but I wanted it to be perfect I guess <laughs> that is really I wanted it to be perfect and I didn't want to trial and error my way to it I realize now that that was the wrong approach because clearly I have lots of information and expertise and advice that can transform people's lives right now even if it's not the absolutely most polished thing that it could possibly have been I've also learned that the way that you get to the iPhone X is starting with like the first iPhone. So I should have just shipped it. And obviously, eventually I did. We started Wealth Builders Academy last year and did the same thing where nothing was in it. And we made it clear, nothing is in this yet. We're going to be building it out. It's a membership. So we add new course content every month. And as long as you're upfront with people, it's turned out wonderfully. That's amazing. And I think that's something with the versions that you actually see in Amy's communities a lot too, where people are like, well, I launched it and it didn't work. So I'm going to build something else. And her and other creators having to be like, listen, no, what do you have to change? <laughs> like, You can't say that it doesn't work until you've done launch two and three and four and really tried to f- narrow in on what's going on. I think we quit too soon very often. That's the hardest thing about business for me is like, I guess I've had a really successful life and business is not all about, you're never going to be always successful. And it's especially hard when you see these massive $100,000 launches. I've never had a $100,000 launch, but I do have a multiple six figure business. And our goal is to get to seven figures within, I was trying to do it within a year. Joseph says, stop trying to kill myself. So within the next five years, especially with COVID, right? Oh, yeah. But there are a lot of failures because with business, you're creating something new. So just be gentle with yourself and stop focusing so much on the outcome because you're not doing this just to have a, you know, six figure, multiple seven figure business. You're doing this because you're called to do this work. So find gratitude in the fact that you're able to do this work and that you're slowly being compensated for the work that you're doing and that you're showing up as the person that you want to be. That's really how we should be defining success. I totally agree. I love it. Tasha, how has this whole business changed your life, right? Like what does your lifestyle look like? I know Joseph's involved now. How has this changed your family life? It's changed it dramatically. Even back when I was still working full time, obviously being able to pull in like our first year of business, we made 5,000 and I'm sure we spent more than 5,000. By year two, we made 76. So we were able able to bring some of that income back to our personal budgets to allow us to hit some of our financial goals a lot faster than we thought was possible. But we've also been able to meet amazing people like Chelsea. I met you at FinCon and I would not have gone to FinCon if not for the fact that I had this personal finance-based business. But we've also gotten to work with amazing brand partners. Like we got to have a family vacation in the Florida Keys because we worked with Visit Florida. We learned how to grill pork because we worked with the National Pork Board and we fell in love with pork. And so just 
just being able to have these experiences, it just enriched our whole life. Yeah, lives together. But also, obviously, I quit my job. I do this full time now. And so I have full control of my schedule. I still work a lot. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm one of those entrepreneurs that runs a multiple six-figure business working 20 hours a week. That is not me. I work a lot more than I've ever worked for any other business, but I work flexibly, which means that I can wake up, work out, hang out with my kids, work some, hang out some more with my kids. Now, Joseph's at home too. So he works upstairs. I work in the office, but we'll stop and give each other a hug and a kiss, get a little snuggle in the middle of the day. And those are real high points of my life that I would never have had if I was still working at my still amazing job over at the CFPB. My life wouldn't have been like that. And so I love that I'm able to spend this time especially with Alexis, because she's 18. She would have been leaving for college this fall, but because of COVID, she's going to stay home for the first semester. But her time with me is almost over. and I've been with her my whole adult life. So just being able to spend this past year, being able to see her for hours and hours and hours of every day while still making money, doing work that I love is just invaluable. How have you used the business to teach Alexis about money and entrepreneurship? So Alexis is a business marketing major. So that tells you <laughs> that. Tells you that. Um, but no, she really is involved. Even from the beginning with the YouTube channel, she learned all about how to create YouTube videos, messaging, deciding what kind of brand you want to build. She has her own YouTube channel that she's kind of been not super consistent with, but it's launched her. So she has 5,000 subscribers. And if at any point she wanted to continue, we have a platform, you know, this is a form of intergenerational wealth transfer that we can use to boost her platform to make it easier for her to grow her own business. So she loves entrepreneurship. She loves everything about business. She's She does our customer service. So she gets to deal with all the great people and a handful of Karens and learn how to <laughs> to navigate that. And it's just an invaluable experience. And more than anything, I think it has taught her that anything is possible. At any point in her life, she can pivot and do something different with her career or even with her business. If she wants to pivot her business, she can do that too. That's awesome. Yeah, we were talking right before we got on this recording of uh, you're going to be speaking at the Mama's Talk Money Summit in October. And Alexis has been emailing me back and forth with like questions and logistics. And it wasn't until this morning that I was like, oh my gosh, this is Tasha's 18-year-old daughter. She's so professional. She's so great. At, it's, it's awesome to see her involved in the business and learning from it. That's a really cool thing. And so as we wrap up here, Tasha, any advice you have for moms that are feeling stuck or like they don't have what it takes to go create a business they love or go create a career that they love? So I would say number one is don't let your financial situation keep you stuck. It doesn't have to. The only thing that keeps you stuck is you and your mind accepting that you can't change anything. Is it going to happen overnight? Maybe not. But it definitely won't happen if you don't start taking action to move forward. In terms of having what it takes you might not have what it takes right now. Very few people have what it takes to create a successful business just inside of them right in this moment. But you can become the person that has what it takes. Everything that it takes to start and run a business, you can learn it. 
So just be committed to investing in yourself and just never giving up and you will get there because it's certainly better to try and fail over and over and over again than to live a life that's full of regret where you never tried anything at all. So amazing things can happen in your life if you try. Absolutely. And lean on Google, right? Yes. Well, honestly, there, here's what I don't actually believe in leaning on Google anymore because there is way more junk out there than there was before. And I also value my time a lot more. So I actually say to lean on course creators. They've already gone through it. They've learned it. They've charted the path for you. Why would you try to reinvent the wheel? Look for ways that you can... Uh, learn from people who have gone before you. So if you want to start out with specific people's free content, you can do that. But typically, I would still recommend investing and going deeper so that you don't have to do it alone because it's hard enough to start a business, much less trying to do it from scratch when you don't have to. Absolutely. So good. All right, Tasha, before we let you go, we have to do our silly thing and have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. Okay. <laughs> so the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. It contains a number of questions about money, motherhood, and life. Are you ready? Ready. What is a big goal you're currently working on and what are some of the action steps you're taking to get there? I am currently working on writing a book. I would love to be a New York Times bestseller because why not set the bar really high? So actions that I'm taking right now, you know, I said, I think it's really important to pay people for their expertise. So I am working with a book coach to help me create and craft that book proposal because you really do with a nonfiction book, you get one shot. So I want to make sure that it's the best that it could possibly be. So that's what I'm doing right now. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to read that book. And also you sound like you consistently set the bar at just the highest level. Why not? If I don't hit it, so what? But if I hit it, wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> it would be amazing. And we love to watch you do it. Tasha, where can people follow One Big Happy Life and see more of what you're doing? We are at One Big Happy Life everywhere. So YouTube, Instagram, at OneBigHappyLife.com. We even started a TikTok. So a TikTok? A TikTok. The jury's still out on that one, but we're technically there. So if you're a TikToker, we're there. You can find us there. <laughs> I'd be very entertained to see Joseph on, <laughs> on TikTok. We do not dance, and Joseph will not dance on TikTok. So if you are going to see Joseph dance, you will be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Tasha, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I hope we get to talk to you again soon. Oh, Chelsea, this has been such a joy. I don't usually get to talk about the consumer finance side of things. So this is awesome. Thank you. Mamas, Tasha is truly amazing. Her fierce belief in herself and what was possible, even when things were scary or overwhelming, is truly a superpower. Now, I'm going to share my normal three takeaways from this episode. But before we do that, I want to call out the important information Tasha shared with us about racial inequalities still present in our financial systems. Gaps in mortgages and auto lending rates, accessibility to small business loans, and banking in general. We have a lot of work to do. Improved disclosures and oversight on credit, lending, and general banking practices are important, but we also have to keep pushing for change. Supporting local and minority-owned banks and credit unions that are investing back into their local communities. Pushing for policies that level the playing field. Continuing to listen, learn, and be actively anti-racist in our behaviors and the way we use our money. Economic power is a real thing. And every time we spend money, we're expressing that power. 
choose to take a little more time to think through the practices you're supporting with your dollars. Okay, so what can we learn from Tasha's story and knowledge? Here are my top three favorite takeaways from this conversation to get you motivated to take action in your own life. First, you need to actually crunch the numbers to know what's possible. There are statistics about how, on average, we radically overestimate what we think our dreams will cost, and that that unnecessarily high number in our heads convinces us we can never afford the life we want, so we stay where we are. Everyone in the military told Tasha she couldn't afford to leave the military. It wasn't until she broke out her spreadsheet, made an updated spending plan, and got clear on exactly how much she needed that she could figure out the truth. That she could leave, she could make it work, and have the capacity to create a life that better suited her and her daughter. If you've been saying something is impossible or just too expensive, take the time to do some research and really crunch the numbers. Make a spending plan. Figure out how you can be creative, because until you put pen to paper, you'll never know if you can do the impossible. Second, you can make time for what you most want. Tasha was a single mother working full-time in the military and going to college without local family support. And then she studied and got into Yale Law, Stanford, and a number of other prestigious law schools while raising her daughter. As she told us, she didn't watch a lot of TV or spend a lot of time going out with friends, but she made the time to do the things that would get her where she wanted to go. Busy has become a badge of honor. We all compete on some level on how busy we are and how little time we have. But busy often means we're not prioritizing. If something is important enough to you, you can make the time. Track your time for a week and see how much you're really spending watching TV or scrolling on your phone. Consider what you could achieve or how you could better take care of yourself if you decided to make some changes and use that time for things that were truly important to you. And finally, third, move forward imperfectly. You don't need to have it all figured out and perfected to start or grow your business. Tasha launched her first online course without an email list, without experience running ads, and without a product. She launched pitching the beta of a course she was planning on developing, and she made $5,000 from running $300 of ads and putting out a kick-ass webinar. Not everyone is going to see those results in their first launch. Your business may not grow as fast as you want, and you may have to pivot over time. But as Tasha so perfectly said, you deserve to be paid for your skills and knowledge. Believe in yourself enough to put yourself out there and get started. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Tasha again for joining me on the show and sharing her knowledge and incredible story. As a reminder, to download your free copy of the Discover Your Passion Project workbook or for a summary of our key takeaways along with links to Tasha's website, One Big Happy Life, head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Tasha. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe and tell a friend. We appreciate you helping more mamas build wealth and create fulfillment in their lives. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time.